You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimal of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Episode number 38 of that one time on tour is brought to you by the band Protagonist. Protagonist is a punk band formed in 1999 in Boca Raton, Florida. The band's new record was recorded by Pete Steinkoff of the Bouncing Souls and mixed by Jamie Wolford of the Stereo. Protagonist has toured with the likes of Newfound Glory, Less Than Jake, and Red City Radio. The band is currently working on a brand new album. For more information on Protagonist, please check out Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Protagonist. FL and on Facebook at Protagonist. Now here it is, their new single, Jean Jackets in June. Summer, but we chill. 
One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Hey, it's Matt Pinfield, and you are listening to that one time on tour with Chris Swinney. Hey guys, what's going on? This is Chris Swinney. I am your host for that one time on tour. This is episode number 38. It's awesome, man. I got to sit down with my friend Matt Pinfield. Matt is a legend in the music industry. He is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He used to host 120 Minutes on MTV, which was a very influential television show for me. I used to watch it every week and I mean, found so many of my favorite bands that are still with me today. Like I saw Rancid for the first time on 120 20 minutes. So many bands. I remember when Matt was not there one time, Henry Rollins hosted. I mean, I wish there was something as cool now as a 120 minutes. It was a different time and Matt had a lot to do with my formidable years of like growing up and finding out about music. So to get to sit down with Matt and kind of explain to him, you know, my fanboy tendencies for him and then honestly just sit there and talk about music. And I mean, we talked about anything from Alice in Chains to Metallica to Rancid to Lucero to, I mean, we've talked about everything. So it's, it's a really cool conversation and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it before I get to my conversation. Like always, it's time to, you know, pay the bills. <laughs> I've got some business to take care of. I got to tell you guys about some of my amazing sponsors. Rockabilia.com is still on as a sponsor. Shout out to Frankie and everybody over there at Rockabilia. They have over 500,000 unique items officially licensed by the bands. The quality is amazing. It's not like stuff you get on Amazon that's come from China or somewhere. It's amazing. I mean, it's licensed by the bands. The bands said it was okay and they get paid when you buy this stuff. So go over to rockabilia.com and at checkout, put in the promo code PCTOTOT and you're going to save 15% on your entire order. I need to tell you guys about Sticker Wolf as well. They are still on as a sponsor. They did our logo. They do stickers for the show. They're an amazing place. They also do graphic design if you need that done. So check out stickerwolf.com or you can hit them up on all of the social media platforms at StickerWolf. Merge 4 is back. I love Merge 4 so much. They just sent me a nice little prize pack. It had socks from the Foo Fighters, socks from Sublime. I mean, this company is unreal, man. They Anything you've ever wanted. I love socks. My wife makes fun of me because I like socks so much. So, you know, having Merge 4 as a sponsor is a match made in heaven. You guys need to check them out. Go to Merge4.com or you can hit them up, like I said, on Instagram, Twitter, wherever you want, at Merge 4. So go over 
over to them and get some socks, man. What are you waiting on? That's about it for the sponsors. Um, you know, we're always looking for new sponsors. We had Protagonist as a new band at the beginning of this episode. You know, if you guys have a band or you have a company and you want to be a sponsor on that one time on tour, hit me up, Podcast at gmail.com. And yeah, I think I'm going to read another review. I'm Like I said, I'm a little bit tired. It's always really late when I do these things, so I'm a little delirious. But when you guys leave us reviews and ratings and subscribe and everything, wherever you listen to podcasts, you know, it helps to show out quite a bit. So I'm going to read this review. We're trying to get to 100 reviews on iTunes. So if you've got an iPhone or iTunes, go check it out. Go do it. But uh, here we go. This is a five-star review, and the title is Amazing. It is from JMKey86. It says, this is great. Not only is it entertaining, but Chris is genuinely an incredible person. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you for taking the time out of your life to share. I know that it's no easy feat with two little ones. Thanks to Chris's wife as well for sharing his time with us. That's awesome. Nobody gives props to my wife, Felicia, but she she really holds down the fort when I'm doing these interviews or when I'm trying to do this, you know. She is the reason the podcast exists. She is my executive producer, so give it up for uh, Felicia Swinney, my beautiful wife. You guys should, you know, send some comments on Facebook or something. Tell her how cool she is because without her, this would not exist. She actually kind of talked me into doing it in the first place. So and she has really good ideas, too. She's always telling me guests I should try to get and wait to promote online. So shout outs to my wife, Felicia. You are amazing. And I love you. And JMKey86, thank you so much for the kind review. I appreciate it. Uh, Hit me up and I will send you some swag. If I read your review on the show, hit me up and I'll send you some cool stuff. And when we hit 100 reviews on iTunes, I'm going to give away a really cool prize. So uh, keep those reviews coming in. You guys could end up on the show. So I think that's about it. I need to get to this conversation. So make sure you're following us on all of the social media platforms. It's at T-O-T-O-T podcast. Like I said, if you want to be a sponsor, hit me up, T-O-T-O-T podcast at gmail.com. I haven't had a lot of calls lately. So if you want to leave me some love or some hate, you can call the T-O-T-O-T hotline. It's 1-765-372-372. 8818. So that's it for me. I'm going to get right into my conversation. Hope you guys enjoy it. This one's a big one for me. Uh, I never thought I'd have, you know, an opportunity to sit down and talk for an hour with kind of one of my idols. I mean, this guy, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You can't get bigger than that. Matt is an amazing guy. He's been healing up lately. He was in a pretty bad accident. We touch on it in the conversation. So, uh, you know, send all your love and and, and thoughts and everything to Matt because we're hoping that he gets better. And this is it, man. I'm going to jump right into it right now. Thanks for listening to me ramble. I appreciate you guys coming with me on this journey. I love this podcast and uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. So here it is, my conversation with Mr. Matt Pinfield. And I'm on the line with Mr. Matt Pinfield. How are you today, Matt? Hey, Chris. I'm doing well, man. You know, I'm I'm starting to get around again uh, after the accident. Yeah, I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about the accident. I saw it on the internet. Are you feeling better? Uh, what, what's the What's the prognosis on all that? You know, I mean, I'm healing pretty at a pretty rapid rate. I mean, I'm. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where you know I can kind of go back and explain it to you. I you know I was walking across the street uh, right near where I live from a coffee shop uh, in Hollywood, here in Hollywood, California. And I, what I was doing was I was crossing the street like I've done a thousand times before. And it's right by the one-on-one coffee shop where, you know, Swingers was shot. And, uh, you know, uh, what's that uh, show that Seinfeld does now, Coffee with Comedians? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was literally walking across the street like any other day. 
uh, I looked to make sure there were no, no cars coming either way. And when I got into the third lane, out of the corner of my eye, I saw this car speeding towards me. I mean, wow. literally out of, out of the blue, like just flying. And I went to jump out of the way, and there was no getting out of the way of the car. I mean, I think the part of jumping up pretty much saved me, even yeah. though it was in- incredible because, you know, I broke my leg in two places. So uh, from the bumper, uh, there was a compound fracture where the bone actually came out of the flesh. I went up over uh, the hood of the car. My head went smashed through the windshield, um, which opened up my head like right down to the skull. I mean, it was wow. split my head right open, bounced back off the hood of the car onto the street and hit my head again, which – you know, it's truly a miracle, as people have said, all the doctors said, the EMS guys who picked me up in the ambulance, that it's an absolute miracle that I survived this because eight out of 10 times, uh, people do not, or they have much, much worse damage than I have. I mean, I have a broken leg in two places, and of course, I had the head injury, but yeah. I mean, I still have all my motor skills. I can still speak. Um, you know, there was no spinal damage. Uh, many times in an accident like this, people will, will suffer paralysis, um, coma, or, or dead. I mean, I'm I'm just incredibly blessed. I'm so lucky that I came out of this the way that I did. And, uh, you know, I ended up being taken. I mean, they cut all my clothes off because I was just covered in blood. And some of my neighbors who were in the – it was, you know, the uh, driver didn't break. So they hit me full on at about 40 miles an hour. And, you Jeez. know, if you hit someone at 30 miles an hour, that can – that can mean death. Yeah. Uh, they say, but 40 miles an hour is pretty hard. But the good news is I didn't end up under the car. Um, I only broke the one leg in two places, which is going to take a long time to heal. And I'm walking around on a walker uh, right now. But, you know, I really was incredibly lucky because I think about, you know, what usually happens in a situation like this. And, um, you know, like they said to me, the EMS worker said, man, you are lucky to be alive. And they had to cut my clothes off. They were just covered in blood. They cut yeah. everything off from my jacket and my, you know, and then uh, brought me in and the, uh, you know, the, the uh, plastic surgeon, the emergency surgeon in the ER, uh, I, I heard them say, because I was conscious for the entire thing, like spinning through the, <laughs> spinning through <laughs> the air, everything. Wow. It was pretty incredible, but it was also pretty shocking. So, you know, I got to the hospital. Uh, and I, you know, heard the, them instructing the uh, surgeon and saying, oh, if you just want to staple, uh, staple them up, meaning my head. And he said, no, no, no. He goes, I know this guy. I watched him growing up on, on TV. He goes, no, I'm going to, I'm going to sew him. I'm going to, I'm going to do stitches because yeah. it'll look better. And I heard him and he did it. And I was conscious for the whole thing. So they were trying to like put in like a local anesthesia into the cut while they were doing some other stuff, plastic, some plastic and sewing my head up it was pretty incredible but you know and then i was uh you know the trauma had caused my heart to race so much and it took them another 14 hours before they could operate on my leg so it was because oh, uh, they have to wait for your heart rate to be like a certain yeah because okay. they were worried about you having a stroke or an aneurysm or something that's caused uh you know by the heart rate being that high and then to put you uh, under with propofil which is of course Sadly, what Michael Jackson was using to medicate himself, and I mean, I can't even imagine that yeah. because that stuff is so strong uh, that, you know, in order for them to do that and put you under, that's really important. So for 14 hours, I couldn't drink any water. You know, I was, it was, it was, you know, they give you these little sponges on a stick to keep your mouth wet. And you're, I was dying for 14 <laughs> hours just, just praying for a drink of water. But hey, you know, 
all, all whatever, you know, I'm just, I'm grateful everything ended up working out. So I spent a, a week in intensive care and then they transferred me to a second hospital, uh, this California Rehabilitation Institute uh, in Century City, where I was doing two to four hours of physical therapy a day. And that was only a week into it. So I, you know, I, I was there for a whole nother week. And uh, and then I, I got to come home and uh, which was which was good. So, you know, um, yeah, you know, I've just been it's been getting slowly better. You know, it's the accident was. Uh, it's going on over five weeks ago now, and yeah. uh, you know, um, maybe it's six weeks. I mean, it's it's just it's it seems like it's yesterday, but it also seems like it's so long ago, you know. But but I mean, I'm getting around on on my walker, and, and you know, I uh, you know, I went to uh, you know Jimmy Kimmel the other night, and you know, Jimmy's Jimmy's always been so cool. We've gotten along so well. They made sure I had like a couch to sit on while I watched <laughs> the Disturb play, and. Um, hung out there and then I, I went to a rap party for the show called Paradise City uh that's gonna be uh you know on by summer on on television where I play myself and and I lucked out in that situation too because uh they were originally supposed to shoot all my scenes the day after my accident and because of inclement weather uh they had to move some of their other scenes from the Santa Monica Pier um to move mine up. And the director called me and said, Hey, can you be focused and have these, these scenes memorized by tomorrow? And I said, sure. I mean, what, what choice did I have? And I was, that was a, a lucky break that I was able to shoot all my scenes before the accident. So yeah, because you wouldn't incredible. have been, you wouldn't have been able to do anything after the act. Like that's no, that's I mean, crazy. My, my head was still completely sewn up. But if you look at early pictures of me online, I mean, I'm all scabbed up and scarred up everywhere. So, well, I'll tell you, just, we we have a, a mutual friend, Blaze James. Oh yeah, I, I love Jay, uh, Blaze. Yeah, Blaze. Blaze, Blaze just, used to manage a band that I was in. I was in a band called Brazil. We were on Fearless Records. We did a lot of work with Blaze, and I'm friends with him on Facebook. And I hadn't heard a lot about. I knew you were in an accident, but he posted a picture of him hanging out with you in your hospital room, and and I was just so excited because you looked so much better than what I'd seen prior. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when TMZ broke the story, and it was uh, then it spread through Variety and People and Hollywood Reporter and Daily Mail and Page Six. It was everywhere. When you look at the pictures, uh, there's a picture of me in, in the emergency room pre, uh, you know, the operation on my head, pre-surgery, and my head is split wide open. And because it was so gruesome, uh, even uh, TMZ blurred out the top of the photo because they just thought people wouldn't be able to handle how, how really it was, it was just too real. So, but you know, um, I mean, all, all the press that came out of it, uh, you know, people were very kind and, uh, you know, and there was, you know, it was just, uh, and then I was just really lucky. I had tons of friends show up, uh, at the hospital. I mean, there were, there were friends coming in and out of the hospital. We, it was just amazing. Uh, the love and support I got. And then even through social media from people that, you know, either watched or listened to me on the radio, um, you know, so I consider myself really lucky and blessed um, to know that people really cared and were moved by it. And uh, I'm just grateful. I'm still here to talk to you today and still able to be out here for rock and roll. And, well, man, you know, I, I am too, because to be completely honest, we'll get kind of the fanboy stuff out of the way really quick and then we'll get into more of your story. But I'm 40 years old. So growing up in the nineties as a nineties kid, you know, I got into metal. I love Metallica and stuff like that, but 120 minutes really did it for me because all the punk bands and the indie rock bands and things that I ended up liking just as much as metal, you kind of introduced me to. So I want to say thank you right off the bat. 
Well, I appreciate that, Chris. Thank you. You know, it's uh, you know, it was a great platform for me. I love doing 120 minutes. It was a show that was natural for me to kind of go into. You know, coming from my, you know, being out checking, seeing bands, DJing in the alternative uh, and rock nightclubs for years and then working on a radio rock radio station alternative radio station on the jersey shore which i you know i started doing weekends there for quite a few years and then i became music director and that was my introduction really into the industry where people knew who i was and you know the radio station uh on the jersey shore it was called whtg it doesn't exist anymore but it was in the asbury park uh, market in that area and uh you know, it was a great, great opportunity. And it was an incredible radio station, breaking a lot of bands. So 120 felt natural. Um, and, you know, I mean, I got to be honest, too. I I was, you know, the only person at MTV that ever was able to really straddle the metal and hard rock and alternative scene because I was doing that show, Matt Rock, which was basically there are still a large number of people in America and around the world who basically think that that was headbangers ball because it was a continuation of headbangers ball. Yeah. It just had a different name. It was Matt rock, but it was, you know, I was on there with everybody from uh page and plant and Ozzy to, you know, to corn. And, you know, I mean, it was just, it was, uh, it was, a, that was like the hard rock and metal show and 120 minutes, which I loved and, you know, really, you know, just the whole opportunity. It was it was a great time to be there when you were watching it. It was still MTV was still really helping artists' careers, and it was a really cool opportunity for me. You know, how did you get hooked up with MTV? I know you worked at the radio station. Was it like how did they you know get you for on air? What was the process for that? Well, it's it's a pretty interesting thing because um, it it started because. You know, the radio station that I was on, um, you know, down the shore, there were people that worked at MTV. If they lived in lower Manhattan or Staten Island or in parts of Long Island or the Jersey Shore, then they could they could hear the station. It didn't broadcast as far as New York City or anything like that going straight up, but anywhere that was over the water, you know, because of the, the height of the antenna. So there were a lot of people that worked at MTV, including in the music department, music and talent department. So that's how they kind of found out about me. And I met some of the people that worked there out at shows and just became, you know, friendly with them. But also they, they would call me up as a barometer to find out basically if, you know, when they were getting hyped on new artists um, to get their things, their videos added, they wanted to get a real feel uh, idea of whether it was just hype or if a record was reacting. And so they started to talk to me about that, especially for 120. And event, I, I, one day I looked in a music trade and it said that Dave Kendall was no longer hosting 120 Minutes. So just in a conversation with a guy named Kurt Steffick who had programmed 120, I was on the phone with him. And I said, hey, uh, I just saw that Dave Kendall's not doing the show anymore. What happened? And he said, well, they let him go from the show. But I go, wow. I go, And I just really naively, and I, I meant this, it was not arrogance. It was more being naive and um, just being, you know, straightforward. I just said, well, you know, you guys could really use someone like me to do that show uh, who, who like the artist respect and really knows the music inside out. And I remember Kurt saying to me, well, I, I don't know if they'll think you're still in the demo. And it's pretty funny because you, you know how many years I was involved with MTV. Yeah, yeah, off. Yeah. Um, it's almost hilarious. But he goes, I'll tell you what. I'm going to propose it to uh, Andy Schoen, and Andy was the head, head of music and talent. He goes, and I'll get back to you in about a week. Well, later that day, he called me, and he said, 
hey, Andy said he's going to have you come in for an audition. So eventually they had me in uh, for an audition. I'd never been in front of a camera before. And, you know, I had to kind of talk about myself and then do like, you know, just do sample breaks like I would do for 120. Yeah. And a month or so went by. And at this point, they were still having artists do the hosting. And sometimes it worked out really well. And sometimes it was tough because some artists are not real. You know, their their music is is their art. You know what I mean? So being a presenter on TV doesn't always mean it's going to work for them. So all of a sudden, Depeche Mode were coming in. And they did not want to host the show. They wanted to be interviewed. So I got the phone call. Well, you know, you can come in and interview Depeche Mode. And I was like, wow, this is great. So, you know, I went in, I did the show. I admit I was a little stiff, but the interview segments went well. And uh, I got a call from the woman who was the, one of the heads of the on-air VJs. And she said to me, her name was Lauren Levine. And um, I recently saw her at a The Buzz show, which was cool because I hadn't seen her in a long time. And I, you know, was, I was grateful. But she said to me, um, Hey, Matt, you know, you were really great with Martin Bohr. And I was like, <laughs> I felt terrible. I love Martin Gore, by the way. And the joke is that that day he was a little burned out. So Dave Gahan from uh, Depeche Mode was like, you know, really engaging me. Martin was kind of staring off. And I was thinking to myself as I'm looking at him going, oh, my God, Martin, pay attention. You're going to kill this for me before <laughs> it even begins. I go, this is going to go, you know. And uh Eventually, you know, he came around, but I, but for years, because we, I've been friends with them and have done a lot of record releases uh, years after that, you know, album specials, I would always joke with Martin, go, Martin, you almost killed my career before it even started. <laughs> That's crazy, TV. man. It was hilarious. And then, but he's such a good, great guy. And uh, what an amazing songwriter. So anyway, I did that the one time and then I got the call and I was kind of waiting to see what was going on. And then they called me up to go up to MTV to have a meeting and I'm like wow this this is promising you know maybe, maybe I'll actually get this gig doing 120 minutes who knows when I get there and I go into Andy Schoen's office he tells me you know we thought you did an amazing job but we're gonna have Lewis Largen host the show and Lewis came from K-Rock in LA he was a friend of mine through radio like you know because all back then all the alternative people there were so few alternative radio stations in the country there were about 14 that we all knew each other and were friends and you know we we met each other at radio conferences and, and just like really kind of stuck together. So I still have so many of those friendships with these guys that were like the originals of programming alternative radio. And, uh, but I gotta be honest, when I got that news, my, my heart sunk to my, like to, my, to the floor. <laughs> and I was like, uh, he goes, well, well, he goes, but Matt, of course we'll keep you in mind for, for, um, filling in and doing other stuff. So I left that day and I remember walking down the street and just feeling like, I'd been kicked in the gut and uh, I had to go do an interview with the water boys for this, uh, for this, uh, uh, you know, CD promo for one of their new albums at the time called dream harder. And I knew I had to pull my act together and just, you know, like suck it up and go do the, the interview and which I did do with Mike Scott. Um, but the thing that I did was I, I always stayed in touch with Andy Schoen. by back then there was no cell phones and, you know, it was a very different time. So, you know, I was still running the radio station and it's one of those situations where because everybody – it was in all the newspapers in New Jersey. It was everywhere. You know, it's like – it's one of those things you're like, well, how are you going to spin this? Because you know what? You <laughs> didn't get the gig, at least not right now. But they did tell me I would be a fill-in. So I basically said I would be a fill-in when people asked me in the press locally and because uh, that wasn't a lie. I mean it was uh, – that's, that's what they told me. And for a good eight months, 
every month I left a message for Andy Schoen. And Andy used to run K-Rock before the guy Kevin Weatherly, who's run it ever since. So Andy ran K-Rock in the L.A. and then went out, got hired. MTV brought Louis Sargent, brought Kennedy all from K-Rock. And um, so, you know, it was just one of those things where I was thinking, well, you know what? At least they'll see me on his phone call list, you know? And that was a smart thing to do because then, you know, if you're out of sight, you're out of mind. You yeah, just keep, keep your name always in the running. And then when it happens, it happens, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's really what kind of happened. I didn't expect to be on the air again. And this is the crazy thing. I was out to dinner with the MTV music department just as friends and it turned out there was another radio station that one of the uh, bosses there, this woman, Patty Galuzzi, was like on the board for. And it was in WBRU, the Brown University radio station, which was a commercial alternative station in Providence, Rhode Island. And I had taken this station on the Jersey Shore pretty much as far as I could. I won two National Music Director of the Year awards. I, um, you know, but I was still working three jobs. You know what I mean? I was, I was doing that. I was spinning clubs at night, like four nights a week. I was doing private gigs, private parties, anything, um, you know, I because I had my youngest daughter at that time. And, you know, between me and my ex-wife, it was, you know, we were just putting our money together to do it. So, you know, I was doing whatever it took. And uh, I loved working at the radio station on the shore, but I knew that I'd kind of hit a brick wall there because uh, they'd gotten a new tower where they were supposed to put the antenna and that never ended up happening. Um, so, you know, all of a sudden I got this, you know, I'm out at this dinner getting back to that. And the Patty Galuzzi mentions there's a station she might need a program director for. Who do we think? And I just said to her, Oh, you know, I might consider that. And she goes, you leave HCG really. <laughs> and she didn't, you know, they didn't realize I, you know, I, you know how little I was getting paid, but you know, I loved my job. So, I mean, that was one of the trade-offs. I just had to work three or three to three or four different jobs at a time, which a lot of guys in radio do, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, especially at small independent radio stations. But we had gotten it to the point where we were in Rolling Stone's best radio stations of the year. I mean, you know, like I said, I'd taken it pretty much as far as I could at that point. And uh, so uh, when they found that out, the next thing I know, I get a call from Andy Schoen. So leaving those messages all that time eventually paid off. He calls and goes, I, we're, there are some people leaving the music department, and I think you might be great here. Will you come in for an interview? And I was like, wow, this is great. I mean, this is amazing. What an amazing opportunity because I'm programming a station in a medium-sized market now, and I can – how great would it be to be one of the people picking the videos for MTV and programming the specials? What what an opportunity. And that was when it mattered. Like it was basically, you know, we stick behind a band or we would make a buzz clip out of a artist. Oh man, I remember the buzz clips. If, if a band, it even said like at the CD shops, it would say like buzzworthy on the, on the CD. Yeah. And that, that would really make a difference for, for an artist. It would, it would really help them get, you know, from point A to point B. And sometimes from B to C, where it almost, almost always, and I, I, and I mean, it's guaranteed a gold record for that artist. Almost always, I, I would say probably eight out of ten times. So, um, anyway, I, I, you know, at this point, I'm thinking, wait a minute. But the other boss there asked me about that job in Providence. I'm like, oh man, I hope they don't, they don't tell him. Oh no, I want to use him in Providence. And then they call me together, and they were like, no. She goes, oh. She goes, Providence will be fine. We'll get somebody else. You know, we want to talk to you about being here. And the funniest thing in the world was I went up, did the interview. I came back and I knew I was going to get a call a couple weeks go by. I know some other people interviewed for the position. A couple weeks go by 
And then I hear Andy's going to call me that day. Now, I'm in a radio station where there's only like three phone lines. And that's for the sales department, the production department, the front office, and both radio stations that are in this house. All right. So <laughs> yeah. there's three phone lines, literally. So they're always busy. And I'm sitting there, you know, I'm going, it's driving me out of my mind because I'm sitting there thinking, oh, man, what if he changes his mind because he can't get through on the phone? You know, <laughs> you sit there and you play it through your head. You're like, oh, how, how can this go wrong? Is this yeah. going to go south? And sure enough, three hours later, Andy reaches me and he goes, hey, Matt, I've been trying to call the station for a while. I'm like, well, Andy, I'm really sorry about that. I know I, you know, there's only like three phone lines down here for the entire radio station. It's crazy to think if you guys had cell phones, there would have been no issue at all. Right. Exactly. I mean, this was, this was still like, you know, the, the uh, early nineties. So he, um, he basically says to me, it's a great line. He, I, he goes, okay. He goes, well, then why don't you come work for me and I'll make sure you have more than three, three phone lines. <laughs> and, and that was the line that was like the life changing moment for me. That's awesome. So, it was a, something I'll never forget that that day. So I was hired with two other people um, because three had left. Um, they brought in a guy named Stephen Hill who ended up running BET for a while, uh, you know, on the urban side, yeah. and, they, and another woman um, who um, was actually, you know, doing some of the book had booked at Letterman. So we were the three new hires in the, uh, and it was a uh, it was ten of us. So it's ten people in the programming department, which meant we were the ten that. When the videos would come in, they called acquisitions like you would at a radio station when you when a new record comes in. And we would have a meeting on a Monday where we would watch like 60 new videos that came in. And sometimes it would be, all right, well, this is something that can go on, on the air all the time. This is something that can be on Headbangers Ball. This is something that can be on 120 minutes. Oh, that video is good for Yo! MTV Raps. So that was kind of how that meeting took place. And then Two hours later, or not, sorry, two days later, we would have the actual music meeting where we decided where those things went in rotation. And everybody would kind of argue for their favorite artists and for the buzz clip. And uh, it was great because, I mean, I really know I know there were many times that by fighting for certain artists that I loved, it made a major difference in their career. So at this point, you got to remember, I'm not on the air. I'm not on the air and I'm not on the radio. Do you remember any of those, like those first couple months or whatever you were there, like the artists that you wanted to pull? Yeah. 311 was one of them. Okay. Um, You know, Manson was one of them. Um, I mean, there were quite a few. And of course we, we got way behind Radiohead on the second album, the Benz, which we got a lot of flack for. We got so much flack for um, sticking behind the bends because, you know, the record had a slow start. There were tons of people in the industry ready to write off Radiohead and say that they were a one-hit wonder with Creep. And uh, so, you know, people were coming in and going, look, my record sold an extra 500 copies more than the Benz this week. And, you know, we just say, hey, we're sticking behind this record. It's art. It's a great album. We believe in it. And, uh, you know, and eventually it went gold and Tom York came over with a staff of capital. And I remember Tom York presenting us with the gold records for the Benz. And he walks up to me and Louis Largent and Andy Schoen and he goes, I know you guys took a lot of shit for supporting this record. And I just want to tell you how much it means to me. And Tom broke into tears. Wow. He literally broke into tears and walked away. And my boss, Andy, looked at me and said, you know, it's moments like that that make what we're doing really really matter you know so that's just one of those you know one of the many stories well, it's so cool it's stuff. cool to hear like 
I mean, MTV nowadays, there's hardly ever any music on there. They still have the VMAs for some reason or another, but it's, it's so nice to hear of how passionate all of you guys were and that that meant something you got behind a record, no matter if it was like the cool thing to do or not, you got behind a piece of art that you guys loved. Yeah. And that was always my, you know, it was always my philosophy too, when it came to 120 minutes, because, you know, I, I believed in being my whole, my whole philosophy was that if an artist spent six months to a year putting their blood on the tracks on a record, if, and, 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 and that was their art, their life, who was I, whether it was my favorite record or not, to not give them the best interview I could do? Because for me, it's all about their audience. And even if they're going to reach a new audience, that's what my job was. And that's how I believed in it. So whenever occasionally you'd, you'd see somebody say some, something like, oh, you know, he's, he, he loves everybody. He loves everything. I'm like, well, you know what? I do love a lot of music. I mean, yeah. I do. You, I mean, compared, compared to some people, I do love almost everything, but not everything, obviously. Yeah. But I also took my job as I was there as a voice, as, as a platform for artists and new artists. And I thought that was my responsibility. So that's why I always believed in treating artists with respect. Well, the reason that you resonated with me and my friends so much growing up, like I said, we were into punk rock and metal, but we all liked so many different kinds of music. And it always seemed like Headbangers Ball was just metal. And you know, Yo! MTV Raps was just rap. 120 minutes, it could be almost anything. And like like I said, I've, I, you know, when you were interviewing Rancid or you're interviewing Henry Rollins or Silverchair or whoever you're interviewing, I could tell that you cared and it seemed like the artist totally respected you and you weren't just some VJ. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that was the thing that was very, very fortunate for me because a lot of those artists were either aware of what I had done in radio, but they definitely knew that I was passionate about it and knew their music. I never walked into one of those interviews, not really knowing the band or the music. And I cared about it. I, and I loved it. And from my experience of being a, a music programmer, not only from doing it in the alternative clubs and rock clubs where you you see immediately re a reaction, but that's different than radio, obviously, because we're talking about people dancing. But, you know, my whole thing was I always believed it was so important to know as much about as many artists as possible. So so you really, you know, had a good head on about it. But I also loved so much music. So that's why I could have Rancid on one week. And Soundgarden on the next week. And you know what I mean? And it was, that's what it was about. It was, it was that, you know, one might be harder than the other or different, but they, to me, those records were just as important because I was the same way you were. And I think that's why it was relative to the audience because I just love music for music. Yeah. I, I just don't, you know, I don't like to pigeonhole things. And, yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's why that Rancid interview, those guys were giving me so much love and respect there with Tim Armstrong and, and Lars. Well, I you mean, know? And I remember back in the day, they were one of my favorite bands. They still are one of my favorite bands. And you were asking Tim about Operation Ivy. I'd never heard anybody in an interview really say anything about that band. And that's one of the biggest, most influential bands in that area. I mean, Green Day still plays knowledge live to an arena of people. Which is great when they do it. I love when they do that yeah. song. Yeah, it's so good. And, you know, and that's the thing, because I was definitely... I had those records and I knew about those records. And that was the kind of thing that really meant a lot to me. I remember it, I, Tim being really surprised when I brought, I brought up that song called the bottle yeah. on their first album. And he was like, so, so they, they gave me a lot of love and respect. And it was the same thing with Chris Cornell, because a lot of the uh, Seattle bands would come in and they just, 
they were they were really wary of a lot of the on-air talent. You know, they just didn't feel it was sincere enough for them. So when I got there, all those artists, and even like on the alternative side, like from the Pixies and Sonic Youth, yeah. would say to me, man, we are so glad you're doing this show now. And then, you know, the guys in Soundgarden, like in one of the interviews, Chris like is high-fiving me on the air and just like, you know. Is that where the friendship with Chris started? Because I know you guys were fairly close. Yeah, we my friendship with Chris, we got really close. And and, and the thing was, I was doing, you know, while I was doing the uh, the stuff on TV and while I was working, even before I ended up on the on the air, which I'll, t- I'll tell you more about. I'll go back to that later because it's another funny story. But because um, there was a period where after when I got hired at MTV full time, I was not on the air and I had no expectations or about being on the air ever again after that one time with Depeche Mode. I literally did not want my coworkers and my bosses to think that I had a hidden agenda for to be on the air. So I was I was very, very happy to be working behind the scenes and doing stuff for the artists and have, making a difference in their careers and getting their music out there. And I was okay with being behind the scenes. And all of a sudden, you know, I had been working there in the music department, I continued to work in the music department, but about six months in, all of a sudden, uh, they say to me, hey, Matt, guess what? Because this whole time, Louis Largent was trying to convince them to have me do the show. He didn't want to do it. He wanted to work behind the scenes as a VP of music and talent. He had gotten tired of doing it. So he was just like, why don't you guys put Matt on the air? And then the, the uh, producer of 120, Rick Hankey, would say the same, same thing. He's like, why do we keep having these artists that can't read? He goes, why don't we put Matt on the air? <laughs> so, so basically, they said to me, hey, Matt, we got Oasis coming in next week, and they don't want to host. So they go, we're going to give you three weeks and see how it goes. So uh, we're going to put you on the air for the next three weeks. And after the Oasis interview, they literally walked in. The woman, Lauren Levine, and said, Matt, I've done a total 180. She goes, you need to be hosting this show every week. So – Right after the first time. And and the difference from the first interview a year and a half before with Depeche to like up to the time when I did Oasis, which started me regularly hosting 120, was that I'd been real comfortable because I'd been around the cameras. I'd been working behind the scenes in the studio. I'd been doing what they call TNR talent and relations. So I was, uh, you know, taking care of the artists, uh, whether it's at the VMAs or when they're coming in to do interviews or performances. And uh, I'd gotten so comfortable that I really, and I also realized I had nothing to lose because, hey, so put me on the air for three weeks. The worst they can do is say they don't like it. And I'm still have this gig as manager of music programming. Yeah. So I'm fine, you know? Nothing and to I lose think at that all. <laughs> comfort level. And I think the fact that I knew I was just going to have fun with it is what really made it break through for me with them. So. I mean, that's that's the story behind that. So it's it's pretty amazing because I did have so much fun with Oasis on the air there. And they were I think they were blown away at how how cool it was and how much fun. And then that started a long term uh, relationship with Oasis as well and doing so much stuff with Noel Gallagher over the years, you know. So, yeah, it was um, it's amazing how things happen when you don't you just don't expect these things. And again, I had I just was never expecting to be on the air again. It was crazy for me because I loved radio and I've been in radio for so long, but I I wasn't doing radio. And then all of a sudden, the the classic rock station in New York City, because of Howard Stern, K-Rock, 
turn to an alternative station. They wanted me to be on there right away. I couldn't do five days a week because I was so busy at that point at MTV as manager of music programming and then hosting a bunch of shows besides 120s because they were doing these, they were doing these, you know, basically research and it was coming back to them that I, I was one of their most popular VJs with the least burn in their research. So they said that people really liked and it was, and they said across the board, I remember that the guys that ran UMTV raps coming up to me and going, Hey Matt, we want you to know, man, the black and Spanish community are really feeling you. And I'm like, wow. really? I go, that's, that's great. I mean, I think people just reacted to honesty, you know, honesty and knowledge. I mean, that goes back to what I was saying. It just always seemed like, I don't know. Like I started this podcast because I don't tour anymore. I have some children and I, you know, it's just not in the cards for me to be on the road full time. And I wanted to be creative and kind of, you know, still create something and, and meet cool people and talk to cool people. And that's what I try to do. I try, it's not really, I'm not a professional as you can tell from talking to me, <laughs> but no, you sound great. I mean, a podcast should be uh should really like what, what makes podcasts so great is how really natural and cool and the interaction of people have on them. Yeah. I think it's very, very important that it's real. And I think that's what people react to regardless. And I know? think that's why all those artists were so comfortable with you because it wasn't fake. Like you said, it was honest and you knew so much about music and all the different kinds of music. I honestly think that's why it worked so well. And that's probably why the urban communities and everything liked you as well. You could have been on Yom TV raps and done the same thing. Yeah, I was very, very fortunate, you know, and I consider all of that an incredible blessing, you know, uh, and I, and I think about it now and, you know, one of the things you'll appreciate too was, uh, that when we started MTV two, which was called M two at the time, it was in reaction to the fact that people were, really complaining that there were too many reality shows. Little did we know how, how much that would even change even more. Yeah, but, right. Um, you know, when it was just real world and road, road, road rules, excuse me, and um, when it was just those shows and things like that, uh, they decided that they were going to devote a channel completely to videos. So when M2, which became MTV2, started, it was all videos. And there was only three VJs on there. And I remember one of the heads of programming coming up to me and going, Hey Matt, we're looking for somebody like you for, uh, for this new channel that we have. Uh, if you have some ideas, we'd love to hear them. And then about three weeks go by, they come up to me again in, in the hallway and goes, Hey Matt, we're having trouble finding somebody like, like you or with your vibe. Uh, if you have any other suggestions or if you can think of anybody, we'd really like, like, like you to let us know. And, uh, all of a sudden, another month goes by, and they come up to me and go, you're going to be doing it. So <laughs> it ended up me, uh, Jancy Dunn, who was an editor and writer of Rolling Stone at the time, another woman named Chris Kosach, who uh, was from Chicago, and we were the first three VJs on the original M2. And I remember it was funny because people would uh, would come down to where our shoots were, and we purposely would shoot in the weirdest place, like hat factories, fudge factories, the basements of smelly bars. <laughs> we would just shoot in the most random places because they made a conscious decision to make the presentation look different than MTV looked. They did not want it shot in the studio. They did not want it to look like a junior. They just wanted it to be something completely different. So we were always shooting on location. So – um. I remember that, you know, people walking in and standing on the other side and they see me talking, they'd hang out for a minute and I'd be riffing about an artist that we were going to play or a couple things that we played and what we were going to play soon. And then somebody would say, Hey man, God, how much, how did you get that much, that much stuff written on that, on that card, on that cue card? 
And then they'd walk around the front and it would just be the name of the song that's coming up. It was so they were in shock, you know, they were in shock that it was I would just riff, but it was it was natural. And I and I learned to do that from doing radio for all those years. So I mean, that was the thing. You you I mean, you know, you had to you had to really know what you're talking about and you know, fly by the seat of your pants. So I think that's the thing that's important. That's why people that do live radio or live television shows, I mean, that's one of the things that they really have to be able to do is they have to be able to talk and fill time and hopefully fill time with stuff that isn't utter nonsense. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> there you go. Well, Hey, but, this, uh, this podcast is called that one time on tour. I, I read something on the internet and I wanted to ask you about it and it kind of involves you being on tour with you too. Uh, did you really get dysentery in South America? You and Bono? Oh yeah, we all did. I mean, it was, it's funny. There's a cartoon series that if you look it up online, MTV, uh, hive or MTV.com for a while. And, and eventually uh, these all got broadcast on VH1 Classic as bumpers. They were two-minute cartoons. But uh, we came up with this idea to do these two-minute cartoons with different animators for each one um, of me telling a two-minute story. And one of them is the famous story of going to Brazil with you 2 And um, it was pretty amazing because the thing about going to Brazil was nobody really warned us. <laughs> just uh about the water and uh, yeah i've been i've if, been there make sure you drink bottled water <laughs> yeah you can, and you know that was the joke i mean i literally got into my hotel room and i went oh wow they got bottled water here and i thought it was to drink so i just chugged it yeah. <laughs> and then sort of brushing my teeth with the regular water and um eventually i was the last one to get dysentery bono got it first all right so he got it and that was the only time in the history of seeing you two as many times as I have um, they, where he did not do an encore because he had to get off the stage to get to a, <laughs> to get to a bathroom. <laughs> um, and then Bill Flanagan, who's been a biographer for those guys and is an amazing music journalist and used to run Musician Magazine and be the editor there. Uh, Bill's a friend of ours and a close friend of you uh, two and Bono. And then Bill got the dysentery. So Bill was second. And then all of a sudden, when I got home, I remember we're flying back and Bono leaves me this funny message on my voicemail and says, Matt, it's Bono. He goes, man, he goes, I'm sorry. I couldn't, I couldn't see right after the show, but he goes, it was pretty hot on that stage, especially for a fucking Irishman. <laughs> he goes, anyway, I'll see you soon, man. And it was, uh, I got this great message from him on my voicemail at MTV. And then I got back, and I remember I landed that night, and I stayed in a hotel in New York City because I was flying the next day uh, to go do this Grammy Guide and shoot with Steven Tyler, and he and I were co-hosting this Grammy Guide. So when I got to the hotel, though, I went in the bar, and there was Barrett Martin, the drummer from Screaming Trees. And like once again, you know, all the Seattle guys were my friends, so we ended up hanging out, you know partying into the night quite a bit you know what i mean yeah. we were we were seriously drinking quite a bit and the next day i flew down there did the thing with steven tyler and then came home and then within about a day i got so sick with dysentery that i lost a good 10 15 pounds and wow. that was not not the good way to lose weight you know yeah, what I mean? yeah. the way where you're on the bowl for a very, for a very long time yeah. <laughs> and you're spending way too much time in the bathroom so yeah we all ended up getting dysentery uh, Bono first and, uh, and then me finally. And, uh, I don't know, man, I don't know how long it took Bono to get over it, but, uh, it took me a, a good two weeks before <laughs> I started actually being able to, you know, 
functional like a human being again. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you know? Well, hey, I also was doing some research. I was just trying to, you know, get some bullet points because I was interested in some stuff. Uh, I saw that in night, and I remember this actually watching this on TV, the 1998 Video Music Awards, Ben Stiller kind of played you in a sketch. Oh, yeah, he did it in two sketches, which which was like kind of the equivalent of almost three. Um, how did you, how did you feel about that? Was it kind of, you know, flattering? Well, I, yeah, here's how I thought about it. I thought it was funny, but I also thought at the same time, I'm like, you know, this is pretty amazing because this guy's one of the biggest actors right now in comedy. Oh, yeah. And he got into two and a half hours of prosthetic makeup to dress as you. <laughs> so where some people were like, were you insulted? I'm like, no, I wasn't insulted. I go, I go, you know what? I go, it took me by surprise. What I didn't realize is because I was doing M2, MTV2, they originally were going to shoot a final skit with me and him doing dueling Matt Pinfields. Oh, but yeah. because of my schedule of shooting in New York – I he only could be in that prosthetic makeup for a day. So he literally spent an entire day in getting that makeup and then shooting those those scenes and then getting out of that makeup. So that was I, I was incredibly flattered by that. Um it was pretty crazy. I you know it's funny I talked to Beck about it and Beck was joking I like I was talking to Beck how Beck when he when he's when he's talking to Beck Beck just looks at him and walks away. Yeah. And I said well, I go Beck why I, why was that and he goes well dude he goes Matt I I had to look out for my brother. <laughs> you know, like he didn't want us. Where Snoop didn't want. He goes. He goes. Why don't you shut up or something like that? Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. And Snoop and I get along great, but it was like you know, Snoop made it more funny, and you know, like you know, and he just made you know, he, like he was effing with me there while he's doing it with Ben, and it was so funny because ages later, Ben said to me, uh, Ben said on a, on a special about the VMAs, he goes, "Man, I thought Matt Pinville was going to kill me," and I did, and I just said, "No, I was actually quite flattered," and it's funny because. That's when I actually became friends with Ben and then, you know, through him, friends with a, a bunch of other people that I know. But, you know, I, I look back at that and consider that I'm, I'm flattered because, you yeah. know, I mean, it, it says that people actually know who you are. And that's a pretty cool thing. You well, know? And speaking of killing Ben, this leads into my next thing that I saw you. You were on an episode of Celebrity Deathmatch versus Jesse, Jesse Camp. <laughs> yeah, that was great. You know, it's, uh, it was so funny doing Celebrity Deathmatch back then because here's the thing. I wasn't involved in any part of the production, and it was such a big show that because when they, the premieres, they wanted the people, no one to know who was going to win the fights and who was going to get killed, they would not tell me. But all of a sudden, I knew that they were shooting these. Um, and so I kind of was speaking to somebody in the animation department who just kind of let the cat out of the bag to me and said, um, well, you know, I'm not supposed to tell you or anybody. We're not supposed to let anybody know who wins the fight. But all I can say is oh, the animation department likes you more than they like Jesse. And I'm like, <laughs> OK, I go, OK, point taken. <laughs> and I'm like, so, That's awesome. So, uh, I won that fight with the help of Judge Mills Lane, which yeah, was pretty yeah, yeah. funny. Who's <laughs> no longer with us? And so, but it wasn't, you know, because the, the even the uh, you know anybody of the celebrities uh, were were not to know who won the fight. Uh, they would use somebody else to do your voice, which yeah, was yeah. which was cool. But it was cool, and you know, it was really great. They gave me. I have one of the claymation characters of me, like in a fighting position that they put in glass. <laughs> And they gave me one that's like really cool. And it says Celebrity Deathmatch. And they didn't do that for everybody. I know they gave me and Manson one. Oh, that's awesome. But, uh, but it was just, it was cool. It was just another one of those fun things that uh, you never expect. Yeah, you know? definitely. I think that's great. And it's great that, 
you know, I'm sure some people back in the day that were, you know, on that show or maybe they didn't take it as well as you did, but I think it's a great thing. I mean, it's, you live in infamy. It's on YouTube for the rest, you know, till the end of time. Well, what's crazy about it too is I, you know, somebody pointed out to me online that, you know, because MTV was everywhere and, you know, I, I still, I, while I was doing A&R at Columbia, when you were on the label, in fact, yeah. um, when I, you know, when I was doing a and See, I love that you, rem- you know that because you're the, the, like the encyclopedia of music and that's, I wanted to talk about that I mean, too. I was at your first show after you got signed over at uh, Irving Plaza. So I was there, you know, um, and I had known you guys before. So it was, uh, it was very cool. I was very happy that you guys signed with Columbia and I know that it was a big deal for Tim Devine and, and, uh, and for, uh, for John Pikus. So that was cool. You know, well, it, it um, makes me very kind of, I don't know, proud. I don't know if proud's the right word, but the fact that like you even know who the band is, that's really cool. Of course. Of course, man. I, I knew your records. Absolutely. My dad, my dad passed away back in 2005, but he always told me when I was growing up, all the bands I was in, he's like, if you guys want a career, you got to get Matt Penfield to like your band. <laughs> Did he say that? That's amazing. He, he would, we would watch 120 minutes. We would uh, record it on the VCR, and I would watch it Monday after I got out of school. And my dad watched it with me all the time. I mean, he listened to crazier stuff than I listened to. He listened to Nail Bomb. Wow, that's that's actually pretty. That's pretty cool, actually. Well, and the, the funny the funny thing was is that uh, I played in that in this band called Brazil. We were on Fearless Records, and uh, the the band that worked with Blaze. And we re- we went out and stayed because they had recorded before I joined the band with Alex Newport, and he was in Nail Bomb. And when we stayed at his place in L.A., I called my dad, and Alex talked to my dad forever on the phone because my dad loved Nail Bomb so much. That's cool. Yeah, that's, See, awesome. that's great. That you had that bonding thing with your dad. It's just such a that's great memories, and it's also just great to know that your dad loved music and was so passionate well, about and, it. And know? my dad thought you were the shit, man. He thought like he watched it every week with me. And like, he, he said that to me on numerous occasions. He's like, man, your band doesn't stand a chance unless Matt Pinfield likes you guys. Well, I mean, thank God that wasn't true, but I liked you guys anyway. I definitely <laughs> yeah. was a fan of yours when you got signed to Columbia. I remember the, the A&R meeting uh, where the guys from the West coast were like, the Ataris are going to become available. Um, and I was like, yeah, you gotta sign these, you gotta sign those guys. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. it was, it was great. Um, and I was really happy that that took place. I, I, I really am, you know, it's amazing. It's, it's great to hear that story about you and your dad. I love, I love that. I think there's nothing cooler than, you know, a parent that really loves, and, I, and I'm flattered again by that. I think that's amazing. Well, I mean, and that was the thing, like my dad got me into music. I mean, it was in the beginning, it was Sabbath and Hendrix and Zeppelin and stuff like that. But watching you every week, I mean, my dad bought his first Sonic Youth record because of you. Well, and that makes me really happy because of course I love every band you mentioned before too. I love all the classics, those, those records and those artists. Are, are the foundation of everything that I love and that what I, just like you did when you were young, those were the records that you heard and you uh, went out and bought and checked out, you know, artists like, you know, you just, those were the things that were the foundation. Absolutely. So, but I love, I also love that, that, that I could, can, you know, talk your dad into buying a Sonic Youth record, which <laughs> yeah. is very cool. You know, well, I, I mean, mean, it's amazing. I just love the, like kind of the, the vastness of what you, I, I follow you on Instagram, you know, and I've, I've, I'm following you on Facebook and you know, just, you've been posting all these different records that kind of meant something to you. And I saw today that you posted a Sloan record and I thought I was the only person in America that knew who Sloan was. <laughs> well, yeah, I loved, uh, I, you know, I love, I think they're a great band from Canada and, uh, that first single underwhelmed, I, oh, you know, I played it's on so the radio. Good, man. It's so good. It's such a great, like alternative pop song. And it's just, uh, so well written and well played and uh 
They're a really cool band. They they'd actually played one of our at that radio station on the Jersey Shore, one of our beach shows that we did, and they were just they they were totally underrated. But but I mean, people in their home country and in the country of Canada really know who they are and, and love the band. Well, that's how I found out about them here in the states. For them, there's a cult following here, which is great. Yeah, well, you know? I, I toured with a band that was on Warner Brothers up in Canada called The Reason, and they did a cover of "Coax Me" by Sloan, and that's kind of my first entrance into that. But I, I bought all their records, and they're just such a great band. Yeah, they really are. I'm, I'm, and I'm so glad that they're still going, you yeah, know, yeah. doing what they're doing, which, which makes me really happy. I love to see bands that can have longevity and have a career. I mean, that's the whole thing. And, you know, that's the other thing that used to always irk me when people would say, oh, they want to hold a band in their back pocket. I'm like, that's okay. I understand sometimes when a band gets bigger, um, you know, it, it, you feel like, oh, wow, now I have to share them with more people. But I mean, I want artists to be able to eat and to pay their bills. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? I yeah. want them. And if they can continue to make a living off music, I mean, I think that's the greatest thing in the world, you know? Definitely. So I've got a couple more questions. I don't want to keep you all day, but, uh, I, I was wondering, I saw this too, and this just kind of blew my mind because I'm a huge fan of these guys. I mean, as is most of the world in 2005, the Rolling Stones picked you to interview them. And it was the first time in 30 years that they'd all been interviewed together. What was that like for you? Uh, it was pretty amazing for me. I, I, I got to say it was, it came on the heels of doing uh, another U2 pro project. Like I'd done a lot of things with U2 over the years and I had just done um, a, a broadcast for how to dismantle an atomic bomb for the radio special release. So what U2 did, they liked it, you know, they liked to create big events. So what they did is they rented out the old Sony Studios, which no longer exists, by the way. Sony Studios, there are a lot of unplugs shot there. Uh, a bunch of other things there, like Hard Rock Lives, were shot there. Um, and also tons of great records were recorded and mastered there. So they used to have this big block that was owned by Sony, which when, uh, when a lot of the studios went down uh, just because of the change of you know what really the record industry was being able to make and maintain – uh, they ended up leveling it and selling it for the real estate there. But um, this building, uh, you know, was was pretty incredible. So they had a live room and there's a stage. So they had like 300 or 400 U2 fans, like 200 plus ones who got to come to what was a secret location because, you know, they knew the fanatics. They knew where they were. It could have gotten crazy there. So uh, they flew these people in. Uh, a bunch of the radio stations in the U.S., um, you know, had contests so th uh, their listeners could come win and, and do this and stay in uh, New York City and witness this thing. And it was me on stage with you two, the four band members and me. And it was funny because I was the only one who was hardwired, meaning uh, my microphone was not like a wireless. Yeah. So I couldn't move. Everybody else <laughs> had a regular one. It was just the amount of uh, microphones they had. But it was so much fun. We did the uh, interview Bono even got up and uh, did some uh, karaoke. He was singing over Vertigo, which was just great for the audience <laughs> over the record. Um, and we did this live broadcast, which was uh, then rebroadcast, but it was heard live around the world. And so Mick Jagger heard it. He, he happened to hear it. You know, he's up in Connecticut. He heard the broadcast and he said, you know, that's that ball guy. I, I want that's the ball guy from MTV. He said, I, I want that. I want that guy to do this. So I get a phone call. Um, that the Stones are, you know, doing this new album, A Bigger Bang, and they wanted to do the first interview where they were all together. And the reason the Stones had decided to do that was uh, they recently started to think about their mortality because Charlie Watts, 
had been diagnosed with throat cancer. And Charlie was in treatment for that. And it got the guys to thinking, you know, and this is the, the, the matter of fact, after Tattoo You, almost most almost all the records in the uh, 80s and 90s were were not done while they were together in the studio. I mean, yeah. they basically would come and work with Don was the producer, and they would all come in separately. So, like, these records were being made by the Stones without any of that cohesive, like, brotherhood um, that's going on in the studio that kind of sometimes sparks magic of two people playing together. So they decided when Charlie got sick that as soon as his treatments were over, they were going to make a record like they used to. So like the days of exile and, you know, sticky fingers and aftermath, they decided that they were going to actually make a record in the studio together, which is what they did, which is why they decided that it was time to do an interview to promote that record together, to keep, you know, to just keep that momentum going. So I got the phone call and uh, it was broadcast live in Japan, New Zealand and the U.S. It was a live two hour broadcast. Started around nine at night. It was in the old Premier Radio Studios, which iHeart, of course, owns now. But they were on top of Radio City Music Hall, so they were uh, they were in the, you know some of the offices up there and studios. So I'm there. I cut an intro earlier on, but it's like two minutes to nine, and all of a sudden, I'm like, "Where is the band? Where are these guys?" I knew their press agent was there who had been there. Tony King had been their press guy since back in like 64. Um, and then other people from the label. But sure enough, they all walk in the stones like one at a time. First, Ronnie Wood comes in and sits down. Okay. And then Keith. Keith comes in. He sits down. And then Mick and then Charlie. And we literally had already started the first song because which we had planned on anyway. But there was a taped intro of me introing the broadcast. That aired. So they literally walked in just in time for the first break and sat down. And uh, I did the interview. And I'll tell you something. They were the coolest guys ever. You would think, oh, we're the Rolling Stones. We've been around forever. We're jaded. Uh, why are we doing this? Uh, we don't really want to talk to you. They were having so much fun. Keith was joking around. Uh, Mick was the ultimate uh, you know, he was just really an incredible gentleman, and, and Mick would always bring the interview back around. You know, like he's so good at doing things. And that was the first uh, time that you had met them, too. Um, I had actually met Mick and Keith once before, and it was uh about maybe about eight years earlier at a thing that radio stations went to, and it was very, very brief. It was like you know, you said hi to him, you kind of were, were you were like shuffled by them. But this was amazing to sit in here and do it with them. And I remember everybody was drinking tea except for Keith. He was drinking vodka. <laughs> uh, he was drinking Grey Goose and Fanta orange soda. There I was like, go. what's with that? I was joking with him. I go, Keith, where's the Jack and Cokes? What's with the Fanta orange soda? <laughs> it was pretty funny. That's awesome. And they man. were just, uh, they were having fun. And, and while, during, while the songs were playing, we were talking about like old records, the show when they played like, you know, at at the Capitol Theater in New Jersey, like the pre-show they did for some girls. Uh, we were talking about, I was asking them about B-sides, and they were willing to talk about all of it. Not once did they snub me or act like they were uninterested. Uh, they were incredible. And at the end of the interview, Mick Jagger said to me, he goes, Matt, he goes, by the way, you did a great interview. And then Keith says to me, he goes, hey, Matt, good job. It was painless. It was painless, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is a big compliment from Keith. Well, you, you know, know you I mean? know those guys have had some painful interviews over the years. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which is why 
you know, they do them. You know, I ran into Keith not that long ago, you know, like, well, I mean, it's guys maybe about eight years ago, but he was doing some kind of press junket from a studio uh, called Penny Lane on East 13th in New York City. And I was up there recording like a Smashing Pumpkins uh, reissue special. And I go in the um, in the kitchen and Keith goes, Matt, what's up? He goes, hey, by the way, can you show me how to work this, this Keurig machine? So I showed <laughs> him how to work, work the coffee maker. <laughs> That's awesome, man. But it's... uh. That was pretty cool, but yeah, that was a that was a great experience, you know, to, to actually interview the Rolling Stones, you know, because I've interviewed, I've done Paul McCartney, I've done one of his album specials. I see Ringo a lot out here in Los Angeles. We ap- actually have a lot of mutual friends, so we get together sometimes. And and Ringo is an absolute, unbelievable, beautiful guy and a gentleman and a, an amazing human being. Um, but I've interviewed, I'm, I've been so blessed. I mean, I've interviewed so many of my heroes, you know what I mean? Going back to all the classics, you know, those, you know, whether it's Page and Plant or, or you Pete Townsend, you know, uh, yeah. all the way up through everybody you can imagine. So, I mean, well, that's my next question. Then do you have like a bucket list. Is there someone you haven't interviewed that you would love to, or have you just kind of done it all? Well, you know, what's funny. The one guy that I wanted to interview and he was up for it, but it never took place just because of timing and me changing from one a job to another at the time uh, was Tom Petty. And I met Petty, and I saw Petty live when I was in high school before anybody really even knew who he was, like when his first two albums were out. I was a huge Tom Petty fan. I was turning everybody in my high school onto him on his first two albums, the self-titled one with American Girl Breakdown, and then the one You're Going to Get It. And um, I remember getting a row of seats for his concert, like they were $4, you know what I mean? Yeah. So. Uh, the fact that I never actually got to interview Tom is is one of the disappointing things and sad things about uh, him, his passing. Uh, besides the fact we lost an American treasure, an yeah. icon, uh, the most important thing. But the fact that I never actually got to interview Tom was uh, was a bit, it was sad for me because it was something I always wanted to do. You know? Yeah, definitely. I I have a little Tom Petty story. I met him one time. Um, I was working in artist relations for this festival, and uh, I had to take care of Tom. And uh, I went up and I said, hey, man, is there anything else that you need? You know, let me know. And he says, can we get some Coke? And I kind of looked at him. I looked at him funny and he goes, I said, Coca-Cola. He goes, yeah, man, what'd you think? And he patted me on the back. (laughs) Yeah, that's hilarious. (laughs) I thought it was pretty funny. That's my one story. I mean, I love Tom Petty, but it was just, it was funny. That is really funny. It's funny that he fucked with me. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It it just shows he had a great sense of humor. The guy's amazing. Yeah, totally, man. And uh, I love uh, hearing his radio shows that he does on Sirius on the Petty Channel. He does uh, that. Uh, they rebroadcast all his old radio shows he used to do from his home studio uh, called Buried Treasure. And that's that's fun to listen to when those come on. You know, you know, we've talked a lot about podcasts and now you're talking about Tom Petty's like old radio shows. The one thing I wanted to ask you before, you know, we get out of here. You had an amazing podcast. I've listened to every episode. What happened to that? Why did that end? I was it, two hours with Matt Pinfield, correct? Well, you know, here's the thing. Um, you know, unfortunately, what was happening at the time was we there was a change in our, you know, our support, our, uh, you know, who we were Westwood one who was uh, I do still do a syndicated radio show with called Flashback, which is on, you know, all over the country. It's on the Armed Forces Network all over the world. It's on 92 stations in the U.S. It's a classic rock history radio show that's on on weekends. But um. The thing was, it was part of another radio show that I was doing for two years. And what happened was they had changed, the sponsorships had changed. So we were going to, we we went on hiatus for a while, but it turns out, 
you know, that right now I'm in the process of uh, working out details on a new podcast to, to take the place of that one. Okay. So we did 200 episodes of that one. And I did one before that. Even if you look it up online, it's called the hive cast with Matt Pinfield. And there's about 60 episodes of that, that I had done with uh, MTV hive. That's also pretty, some pretty great interviews on there. And, um, but uh, yeah, it's, we're, we're going to relaunch. Uh, in, in fact, it's like literally, um, it's, er, it's gone into early paperwork. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and this is, just just literally found that out right before the break. I literally had you're gonna laugh this shows you like how devoted I am to my music stuff that I was supposed to have a phone call with these people, a conference call. Um I found out like on that, you know, it was Monday when they reached out, talked to my management, and then I said, Yeah, I'm pretty I'm interested to see see what they have to say. So I had a conference call with them three days after my accident. So I'm sitting there and I see you and I'm on the conference call and they're like, we can't believe that you're doing this phone call <laughs> and crazy. you're still in the hospital and in intensive care. I'm like, well, you know, this is important to me. Let's, you know, see what's going on. So all right now it's, um, it's kind of in, you know, like, like I said, it's in, it's er in early stages, but you know, I'm hoping uh, that this podcast, the next one I do will be up and running, you know, by April, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so that, that could be great. And, uh, I look forward to having the opportunity to do it again. And, uh, you know, I love podcasts. I think podcasting is what it's all about. That's why I love what you're doing. I think it's just there, you know, I, I so enjoy listening to podcasts and there's so many great ones. And, Definitely. you know, I, yeah. you know, I, I'm, so, that's why I was really excited when you wanted to have me on. Oh man. You know? I mean, it's, it's a dream come true. Honestly, your dream guest. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Oh, anytime. You know that this this has been great. <laughs> well, I yeah. wanted to, I wanted to try something a little bit different. You you know so much about music. You love it so much. I want. Can I give you say a genre and you give me maybe your top three just off the top of your head? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, go right ahead. Okay, so let's go. We're gonna start out with grunge. Oh yeah. All right. So my favorite. I mean, you know, I've got I've got to say, um, you know, my favorite records there would be. It's it's a really close tie to number one for Soundgarden, Super Unknown, and Bad Motor Finger. Yeah, yeah. Um, and number two would be Dirt by Allison Chains, and number three would be Pearl Jam Versus. So it's you know all those are my those are my favorite. Uh, Can we just talk for genre. a minute? Like I think Dirt. I mean, I love all those records so much. They meant so much to me in my life. But Dirt is like a perfect album, is how I feel. I agree with you a hundred percent. And you know. I love that record. I think that it was, it was, they tapped into something absolutely amazing. It was a very, very great dark record. Um, I mean, the songwriting of Jerry Cantrell, you know, the, the incredible layering of Jerry and Lane Staley's voice is just one of the greatest matches in rock history, in my opinion. Their voices together, you know, like John and Paul's from, from a different era. I mean, I'm just saying they were so so amazing well, and they, um, they hit those really weird harmonies like they're not just normal thirds or whatever in music theory like they hit something that struck a chord with people it's it's the allison chain sound nobody else sounds like that no they don't and you know the guys are still out there i, I was with mike inez uh their bass player uh, i guess two weeks ago and uh those guys are still still out there doing their thing they're nominated for a grammy this year and you know they're uh they're, they're very excited to still be playing sean uh Jerry and Mike and, uh, and William, you know, does a great job oh, of yeah. singing with Jerry. So it's, um, you know, I love those songs and I, you know, I always will. They, they mean a lot. And it's great because I actually on my wall here, my, 
in my place. I have a I have a platinum dirt and a platinum jar of flies on the wall. <laughs> That's awesome, I, man. You know, for being a big supporter of them early on. Yeah, which definitely. Is cool, you know. Okay, so we'll switch gears to another genre real quick. I'm not going to do a lot of these, but I'm interested. So uh, let's go maybe metal, and that can encompass all metal genres, just like a, a big general swooping of metal. God, it's really uh that's that's going to be a the tough one. That, yeah, it is. But you know. I got, you know, it's funny when I, when I think about metal, I still, I mean, and there's so many great later ones too, but I've got to say, uh, master of puppets, uh, Metallica is right up there for oh, me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. As one of the greatest records, I got to say black Sabbath paranoid. Um, I love, you know, um, uh, it's, it's really, it's, it's just a, it's a hard one. I mean, cause I could go back to like deep purple, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. To like to machine head or, or made in Japan, you know, um, and all the way up through things like Mastodon, you know what I mean? Yeah, and totally. So you know, so it's it's very hard. But I mean, you know, those are those are some of my favorite records. And Metallica, of course, are just. Uh, I mean, Master of Puppets is a favorite. It, it was just came along at exactly the right time. Definitely, was, you know. So that's a big one for me. Okay, so last genre, and I'm going to get this very specific. Uh, I'm going to say '90s punk. <laughs> '90s yeah, '90s punk. punk. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, oh, mean, no, no, 90s punk. That's kind of like where a lot of my musical stuff kind of stemmed from. So that's, I want to, yeah. I don't want punk is too broad. I want to come down to the 90s punk. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to be honest and I can just say, I'm going to start off with the probably, I, and I have this is on the wall literally right in front of me right now. Um, is a, we meant, we talked about them before. Number one for me is an outcome the wolves rancid. Hell it's yeah, one of my man. favorite records. And that's, you know, I've got my gold record from the guys and I just, you know, I love those guys as people. I mean, they've always been unbelievable to me. I, they're, they're just such a great band. And let me think. I mean, I, I, I hate to say it, but I have to say Green Day, man, Dookie, because I Dookie's just, amazing, man. I mean, people. I think Dookie's one of the greatest. I mean, it's just one of the greatest records. Yeah. So I love, there you go. You've got two bands from the Bay Area right there, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, You know, and then I, I, you know, I I love things like, you know, like Jawbreaker, 24-hour revenge therapy. (laughs) Dude, we used to cover Jawbreaker. Hell yeah, man. Yeah, you know, so like, you know, those are three of my favorites. I mean, there's so many. I could could literally say more, but I'm going to just, I'm going to go with those three for right now. Okay, okay. those are great. Well, that was really fun. Thank you for kind of doing that for me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I love those records, Dear You and uh, 24-hour revenge therapy. One was on a major... I debuted that video fireman on 120 minutes, which was a pleasure because I was already a big fan of jailbreaker. So it was, it was cool to get those guys on there as well. That's awesome, man. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, we're going to tie this up, but I do want to know, do you have any new bands out there right now that people should look out for? Like, I know a lot of people value your opinion. So who are you listening to now? Like, well, there's, you know, there's really so many, but I think the band in the, as far as rock goes, my, um, my favorite band of the last five years uh, is Royal Blood. Okay. I love that band. Uh, they're two piece from Brighton, England. Uh, they have two albums out. Their debut album is is a, is is a perfect album. It's a flawless record, in my opinion. It's incredible. They're a two piece, but what they do is so interesting. It's because you know, uh, basically, the bass player who's the lead vocalist. Uh, I mean, he's he goes he's wired through all these different pedals. And when they play live and on the record, it sounds like a full band. I mean, it's it. You never sit there and think you're just listening to bass and drums. Yeah. And the drummer is a monster, and like the way Keith Moon was. So, 
they're incredible. So they have two albums. One album's called uh, Royal Blood. The other one is How Do We Get So Dark, which, uh, you know, I absolutely love love them. So that's, that's, awesome. that's one of my favorite things these days. You know, what about yourself? I mean, I listen to God, so much stuff. The band, the band I'm listening to a lot right now, I love a band called Lucero. I don't know if you listen to Lucero. Oh, Lucero, great. Yeah, they're I mean, they're not a new band, band but they do have a new record out. Yeah, and I I agree. I mean, they've been around for probably their first record was when was it? Was it like two thousand and seven, or was it? No, I think they had one earlier than that. I don't know yeah, how like well released it was. But yeah, they've been yeah, around for they, quite a while. They're a great band. I really like those guys too, and I definitely played them on the New York. We played them on the New York uh, alternative radio station that I was doing the morning show on another great station that no longer exists. It was called WRXP and I would do the, I was on the morning show there. Uh, but we were, uh, you know, we truly played cool new things every night. Uh, Brian Phillips, the music director. And then we would always break new artists and do a lot of really cool things. So, Lucero were one of those bands that we we would always get behind. You know, I, I'm listening to another band too. They're actually broken up, but I got into them kind of late. It's an Australian band called Paper Arms. Oh, I, I, those guys are awesome. They're Absolutely. so good. Yeah, it's, they're wonderful. And so there's yeah, there's a bunch of stuff. You know, I mean, uh, there's always something new. And and Blaze James we talked about earlier because obviously having signed Coed and Cambria um, to Columbia. Um, you know, Blaze and I have been friends for forever, and I'm still friends with those guys like brothers. Um, he has a band called Basement that are just put out their second record, okay. which uh, is very cool. And I just went and saw those guys recently. Uh, and I like that band, Nothing But Thieves. Uh, and oh, I know yeah, they're, yeah. I love Nothing But Thieves. Um, and and they are they are such a great live band. I mean, and they're very young, and but they're a, they're they're really they're a great band to go see live. I really suggest going to check them out. You know. There's a new artist. There's a kid called Des Rocks. It's D E S R O C S. Awesome. Who, um, you know, is basically he's streaming on Spotify and Apple Music, but um, his full full length record is not is 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 being recorded as we speak. But I like Des Rocks too really a lot. You know, I think that that guy's amazing. He's just doing some really cool stuff. I've been the only you know, really, really new stuff that I've been listening to as of late. My kids, for some reason, got into it because it's on YouTube. My son loves Bishop Briggs. Oh, yeah. But she's great. She's, she's amazing. Really cool. Yeah. I love I love stuff. her. With River and those songs. Yeah, yeah. I was standing on the side of the stage at the K-Rock Weenie Roast uh, while the s- s- rotating stage was going around this year. And she came out. So I stood on the side of the stage and watched her perform. And she was really amazing. She was great. That's awesome. Very, very spiritual. You know, she's great, you know? So I tell you what, I always play music because, you know, normally I speak with musicians. Is there anything that you would like me to play, maybe from a new band or something that's a classic? I can do whatever you want. Well, I mean, you want to play something new? I mean, uh, check out this guy, Des Rocks. I mean, there's a, there's, um, there's a couple of really great – there's there's quite a few really great songs, and they're going to be dropping one like every um, – I don't know, every three weeks soon from this record coming out. But there's something called – Used to the darkness. Uh, that's really cool. And how so do you, you how do you spell that. how do you spell his name again? It's it's weird. It's and his his real name is Danny, but it's Des Rocks D E S R O C S. Okay. Um. So check that out. It's called Used to the Darkness. It's really interesting because he produced all of it himself. That's great. And man. Played on all, but he has a full band that performs live, and he's really killer live. He's uh playing San Francisco and L A. He's doing his first West Coast shows, but he's already like. I mean, people are so into him already after seeing him that he's already like booked for a bunch of festivals coming next year before his record even drops. That's, I mean, that's awesome. Which is really cool. So uh, 
Yeah, check out the song Used to the Darkness. It's very cool. Okay, definitely you I know? will. So uh I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. How can people find you? What are your socials? Oh yeah. Um uh it's really weird because it's confusing because other people have used my name. Um but oh you know it's funny because Matt Pinfield is actually a pretty common name in England. Yeah. Um it's an English name. Uh in England and Ireland, because I'm it's funny, I'm English Irish. It's um So am I. You will um <laughs> you will literally find like more than one Matt Pinfield. In fact, we did a joke once on a morning. There's, there was a guy in a really cool band called the young runaways, really nice guy reached out guitar player and his name. So we did a thing on my morning show in New York, Matt Pinfield, meet Matt Pinfield. <laughs> we, got, we had him on the phone from, from England. You know what I mean? Yeah. Doing a thing. And then we played his band on the air, but um, I hear, here's how you find me on Twitter. I'm at Matt Pinfield, but on Facebook and on Instagram, it's Matthew Pinfield. So it's Matthew Pinfield, like one word. So okay. that's that's how to find me, Matthew Pinfield, um, on both Facebook and on and those. I I mean, I post on all of them every day. And like you were saying earlier, I I always post uh, forty five sleeves and forty fives every day. You know, to to mark some kind of anniversary or birthday that has to do with artists. Because yeah. uh, I enjoy that. And I think I really love doing that for people, and people like it because you get to see this really cool. 45 artwork if you're you know, a fan of the fan of the music and i, I put up some really cool stuff but it's but it's a fun thing to do and i just decided to start doing it one day and uh i continue to do so so it's great i thought at first you were doing one of those like challenges they do on facebook but then it never stopped i was like oh this must just be the thing he does i love this yeah i've been doing it like almost almost every day unless there's really nothing good to post on day, yeah yeah historically but um but I do love doing that. It's just a kind of a way. It's a it's a nod to uh, to all the rock history out there, and just so many good things. But uh, but I but I enjoy doing that. But I yeah, once again, if people that's, like I said, it's I, I told you I was at, at Matt Pinfield Twitter and Matthew Pinfield at both uh, Instagram and Facebook, which is cool. So well, hey man, just thank you so much for coming on the show. I I I, I love speaking with you, and I know that if my dad was here, he would be freaking out because he was a huge fan as well as I am. But I just. I really, really appreciate it. And I'd love to have you back in the future and just geek out about music, honestly. Oh, yeah. Anytime, Chris, it would be my pleasure. We could just sit here and talk about records and bands we love next time. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's Whatever you want to do. Yeah. But, I'm, but I'm really, I'm, I'm so flattered about your dad. God rest his soul. And man, I'm, I mean, that just, that, you know, hearing stories like that, hearing, hearing that story in particular, that just makes my day. And the fact that, you know, he loved music, you love music, it's part, it's part of both your lives. I just think it's fantastic, and I'm really glad you're doing the podcast. Well, thank so you very much. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a link when it's out, and then you can check it out. But hey, man, you're awesome, and I so hope that you keep on the mend. You know, you keep healing up. And uh, I just want to so say for me personally, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners, as well as a lot of the people all over the world, we are so, so happy to still have you around, and uh, just thank you. Yeah, well, I'm so grateful to be here. I just wanted to let you know that, and I'm so glad that we could talk and I could talk to you today and I'm, and you know, I have the gift of still being alive. Every day is a gift and I'm, and I'm very grateful for it. You know? Yes, sir. <laughs> All right, Chris. Well, listen, it was great talking to you. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, no problem, man. I'll talk to you in the future and I'm sure we'll get you back for a part two. We'll just geek out about music. Yeah. Anytime you want, I'm there for you. Okay. All well, right? I'll talk to you later, man. Thanks. All right. Take care, Chris. Yep, bye. So there it was my conversation with Mr. Matt Pinfield, a legend 
in the music industry and just a legend of a guy too. I had such a good time talking to Matt and I'm definitely going to take him up on his offer to come back for a part two because, you know, one of my favorite things in the world is to talk about music and I can't imagine doing it with anybody better than Matt Penfield. So thanks for checking out this week's episode. I appreciate it so much. I do need to tell you about another sponsor that I kind of forgot about at the beginning. I don't know how I forgot. They're, they've been a sponsor forever. Uh, Muncie Music Center. It's the store I work at here in Muncie, Indiana. They're at 600 South Mulberry Street downtown. Or you can check them out on the World Wide Web at www.munciemusic.com. They're a great store. You guys need to support them. And uh, I love it there. I go there almost every day. I also need to tell you my buddy, Marco Randazzo, who has a really cool podcast called Zealous Musician. He just dropped today his episode about the band Thursday. And yours truly, Mr. Christopher Swinney, is a guest on his show. I get to talk about how much I love Thursday and some stories about seeing them for the first time uh, on their first tour and all kinds of cool stuff. So head over to zealousmusician.com or you can just search for Zealous Musician wherever you get your podcast and check it out. He's got an episode about Thrice, an episode about Copeland, uh, As Cities Burn, all kinds of cool stuff. An episode about Emery, my guys in Emery. Go check out Zealous Musician. So that about does it, guys. Make sure you're following us on all the social media platforms. Subscribe rate and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you consume your podcast. I'm going to get out of here. It's late and I'm tired. I do have the day off tomorrow though. I'm pretty excited about that. So uh, I hope you guys, if you live in the Midwest, you didn't get uh, you know too messed up with the snow and the ice. We were pretty much snowed in the entire weekend, but uh, I went to work today. Everything's going well. So I will see you guys next week where my guest will be none other than drummer extraordinaire, Mr. Ricky rocket from the band poison yes poison it's gonna be awesome you guys i can't wait for you guys to check it out it's great but uh, i'm gonna leave you with used to the darkness by des rocks which is the song that matt picked Uh, i checked this out the night he told me to check this out and i love it i gotta say it's a little bit different and uh i think this guy's going places if matt pinfield digs your band you're going places so here it is des rocks with used to the darkness I'll see you guys next week. Chris out. I made mistakes. Lord struck me down.
This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths, and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.